0: Or perhaps a little longer, we're going to be taking a series of studies on God's house. And uh, this first lesson will be important that we uh, understand some of the basic principles that we're studying, that we lay groundwork of understanding, uh, so that we may understand uh, and have a, uh, a reference and a framework within which we're going to be working throughout the course of the study. When uh, we use the term house as, a, as Americans, immediately our uh, minds lock into a uh, structure, uh, a locale where we're going to come and we're going to dwell and, ab- and abide. When I say house, uh, if I said uh, your house, your mind frames in the living room, bedroom, kitchen, <coughs> junk room. And uh, that's, that's what your mind immediately references to when we use the term house we do not have any uh, any reference for interpretation of the full biblical understanding of the term house Uh, we use uh, a number of of terms that uh, are closely related and this is family and uh, our uh, relatives and all of these things that, that uh, are closely uh, related. But we have no English term. We have no Western cultural setting for an understanding of the biblical term house. Because the only thing we can think of when we talk about a house is either a place that we're managing for the bank or the mortgage company or a place that we're renting. That's the only framework we have. And so we miss a great deal of the rich uh, terminology and the rich understanding of biblical revelation. See, there are many terms in the Bible. Uh, the English language one of the poorest languages on earth. Uh, the Greek language, the Koine Greek in which the New Testament was written, is one of the richest languages. And all the words that are used in Koine Greek in which the, uh, the New Testament was written have rich facets of meaning. And uh, I preached uh, a Friday night on uh, God coming in the fullness of time. And during a part of that, a part of what that fullness of time was, was that the world was familiar with and was attuned to the Greek language that was one of the most expressive languages of all time. And in that language, the English New Testament was written. And so there are a lot of terms in the Bible. That you and I have problems with because of the cultural, uh, the cultural expression does not fit. Our generation does not fit our culture and the interpretations that we give to a word, for instance, like house. Immediately we miss an entire scope of understanding that the Word of God has for us, and so when we read the the Word of God, uh, it does not readily come to mind. Now it all unfolds as we continue to study and. And we allow the Holy Spirit in the process of time to develop us. But there are many terms in the, in the Word of God that we have no reference to. One of these is house. We have no reference for the term house. Another of these is a steward. We have no modern uh, cultural reference point for the, for the term steward. We, it just simply misses us because we do not have stewards in our culture. Now, if I was to say, uh, we're going to have a stewardship conference, immediately people who are religiously attuned and who've come out of the denominational churches and uh, been around a long time, they'd say, oh, we're going to have a drive for money. That's what you would say. But uh, it, it's far more than that. And that's only just one small facet of the entire understanding of stewardship. And the reason that we miss this is that we have no reference point for the term steward, and the, uh, and the expression of stewardship. When I say uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to give an understanding of the word servant, it just misses us completely because we don't have servants. We've always lived in a free society. We've always lived in a democracy. Uh, we've lived where people get jobs and, uh, and it's free enterprise. And so we have no understanding of the term. Our minds cannot lock in to a term servant. But all of these are terms that have to do with an understanding of the tremendous study of God's house. And so I'd merely use those words to give us an understanding. And so to help give us a groundwork for biblical interpretation, and I want to say again, if, it, if, the, if the advertising that I'm going to be teaching on God's house didn't turn you on, in other words, if I didn't find some flashy uh, hook that I could hook and bring you in, don't miss these, uh, these times because it will give you rich understanding and in biblical interpretation that will help you in your daily Bible study. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to be a student. You have to apply yourself. I was reading in Proverbs this morning in, in devotions uh, that uh, wisdom comes to those that search for her as for silver looks for her as for gold. And so if you're intending to just uh, uh, kind of bop along and you're going you're gonna to hit one, uh, one uh, session and then you're going to miss the other and you're going to hit it, then you're, you're not really interested in the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is only gained by search. And if you're as eager to attain the wisdom of God as you are to fill your pockets with money, then you'll have the wisdom of God. It will begin to unfold as you begin to seek her. And so biblical interpretation uh, depends on understanding the expressions of the New Testament life. 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, and then you, uh, we want to go on there from there to another uh, verse of Scripture to lay some groundwork for what we're going to say this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We won't be getting a lot of, uh, of audience participation this morning because I want to spend this session for laying groundwork for what we're going to say, and we'll review this as we go along. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, is an interesting uh, statement by the Apostle Paul when he said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground, of the truth, so we have immediately the statement that we need to understand how we ought to behave ourselves in the house of God. And so, to our uh, to our Western cultural reference, we say, "Well, <clears throat> we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't run on top of the pews. We oughtn't to uh, we oughtn't to uh, disrupt services. We oughtn't to uh, let our kids uh, play Lone Ranger in the." Services and the sanctuary, and so this is immediately flashes to us when we say how we ought to behave ourselves in the house of God. Because to you and I, immediately, house means a reference point, and there is that meaning to it. In other words, there is that as we'll begin to study. But there's far more to an understanding of what the apostle just said there than simply the place where you and I assemble together or a building where we assemble together and uh, this has to do with far more, and he references there concerning the church or the assembly of God or the ecclesia, those people summoned by the Holy Spirit and gathered together, but it has far greater ramifications than that. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. We want to catch a companion scripture, and uh, we'll use this for the launching of our study and perhaps come back to these uh, in the succeeding weeks. Hebrews chapter 3, God's house. This is what we're studying about. We want understanding concerning God's house. And so the apostle has just left us with a statement that we should not be ignorant of how we ought to behave or conduct ourselves or a framework of reference, how we ought to uh, become involved and conduct ourselves in the house of God or God's house. Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6 says, Wherefore, or for this reason, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as the son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now we, suddenly as we begin to look at that, here's our, the Spirit of God is carrying our minds. If we understand anything about Uh, what we're going to speak begins to reach out in all directions with tremendous statements that reference clear back into the Old Testament. Begins with Moses and moves on down into our Lord Jesus Christ in a facet of revelation and begins to lay uh, into us a, a, a foundational truth and leaves us and keeps referencing back to house and household and house and leaves us with those tremendous statements that we no doubt do not fully comprehend or understand. Okay, if we're going to understand this morning the study of God's house, we have to reconstruct a picture of a wealthy household in Bible times. We need to understand what a wealthy household in Bible times had as a structure, because out of that, the, the verses of scriptures that we have just read begin to flash back, and they're evidently capturing something to the people they're talking to that you and I do not understand, but that the apostle just takes for granted that they understand the structure of a house or a household. He's not talking about the physical building. That's very evident from the reading of the Scripture. When he says house, he is saying nothing about a physical building, but he's talking about a concept that has to do with this structure somehow of revelation in the kingdom of God of divine truth, and God is giving revelation within the framework of that. So we need to reconstruct a household. Now, to do this, we want to give a little study of some Greek words. We have several words in the New Testament. One of these words is oika, which is the Greek word, and it uh, sometimes is uh, 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 translated oikos, or there's two different facets of the same word. This has to do with the physical house itself. In other words, if I, if, uh, I said to you, I live at 345 Chaparral Drive in Prescott, I'm talking about the place that I dwell in. And so we're talking about a building in which people dwell. This is the first and the basic meaning of this grouping of words that we need to understand to understand the concept in which we're talking. Now, the word oika has to do with the the major part of the house. The word oikos has to do with the apartment or perhaps a room or a section within that house, and so they're both related. Very closely attuned to this, although there's another word used in the New Testament in John 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And there's a a different word used for this, but it means the same thing. In my Father's abode are many dwelling places, and he uses another word, but it's the same meaning, "or, or an apartment within my Father's Dwelling, just to give you a reference of, of what we're talking about, and this word here is used in my father's house, oikos. The second word that we need to understand is the Greek word oiko. Need an need. This has to do with the household. In the household, there are uh, systems of thought. We need to uh, get someone to get for us 1 Timothy 5.8. Someone would get that for us, if they would, quickly. Uh, Dave Burke, if he will get for us 1 Timothy 5.8. And so there is an understanding now that there is a group of people or household that lives in this physical dwelling or this physical abode. So now we're being carried from this base word on into a further thought, and that is not the physical dwelling, but the people that live within that physical dwelling. 1 Timothy 5, eight. Will you read in a loud, clear voice, Dave Burke? But if any provide not for his own and especially for his own house, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. Now what he's saying here is that if a man makes no provision for his own relatives and especially for his own family, and this uh, uh, has a little different uh, uh uh, framework, it adds an on there that has to do with the family or the orchion, And so here we have not only the house, but we have also the household. These are people who live in that uh, especially carry the the connotation of family or the relatives that live within the house. Then we have a third word. This third word is oikodespoti. its not important that you know the word? I'm just catching a concept. I can't read Greek either. I use dictionaries and all kinds of study books. Amen. Now we're talking about a further concept, and that concept is the householder. In the thought of the householder, we're catching the thought of the ruler or the master of the house. The Scripture defines him as the good man of the house. Immediately, you who are Bible students are going to pick up that word. I need several scriptures over on my right. I'd like to have Matthew ten twenty-five. Uh, Randy Foster. I'd like to have Mark fourteen fourteen. Uh, maybe Lee, uh, if you'd get that for us. I want First Timothy five fourteen. Uh, Ron Gandolfo. Matthew ten twenty-five. Mark fourteen fourteen. First Timothy five fourteen. We have the householder. Now he's the ruler or the master of the house. All moving from the same root word. Could we have Matthew 10.25 in a loud, clear voice? talking about this word, the householder or the master or the ruler of the house. Mark fourteen fourteen. And wheresoever he shall go in, say to the good man of the house, the good man of the house, the master saith, Where is the room that I may eat? The Passover, that's Mark fourteen, fourteen, and first Timothy five fourteen. Guide the house is what I'm looking for. The authorized version uses rule the house, which though it's in a different framework. It's the same word, and it's used in the Greek New Testament, but the English carries it out in a little different thought uh, and uses another uh, terminology. But what we're after is that the older older women teach the younger women how to guide the house or rule the house. And so what we're talking about in this third word then is the householder. We're talking about he who rules or manages the household or those who live within the house. Then we have a uh, a, uh, a fourth thought. This is oikites, moving from the same word or the same root word. Here we have the house servant, or as he's called in Africa, the house boy. Dulos was the general word for a slave, but, uh, but oikites was the servant who works in the house. In other words, this is not talking about a slave. This is talking about one who works in the house. In Africa, we'd call him the houseboy. This is the terminology that's coming out of there. The Latin word is domesticus. All who lived in the domos were called domesticus, or we and I would call them domestics. A few people who are very wealthy today have domestics who live within the house and their home is in the house and they serve the wealthy and so there are few people still in our society that we can get just a little thought of what we have. Then we have the fifth word which is very important. Orcanomos. This is going to be uh, the one that we're going to be locking in on uh, the most and this is the housekeeper or the steward. This is the person whose office is termed oikonomia, or the steward. It's very important that we understand now that concept. Okay, so here, let's let's think. We're talking about a wealthy biblical household. We're studying a, a series of studies on God's house. To understand that, we must understand how a biblical household was structured. We found out that oikia is the physical house where they dwell. Oikoi was the household. Oikidespotis is the householder, the good man of the house, or the master, the ruler. Oikites uh, uh, was a servant inside the house, a domestic servant. And oikonomos is the steward of uh, that house. Now, this fifth word is the word that comes from oikos. It's a word that comes from house and the, and the word nomos, Greek word nomos which uh, uh, gives us the, uh, the uh, uh, economics. That's the word from which we get economics or econ- economy or economical. And so we need an understanding of that word to understand what we're going to begin to talk about in god's house, and uh, there's a quotation that would be good for us that I'll give you out of Grimm and Thayer's lexicon and this uh, this interprets this word oikonomos or oikonomia, and it gives us this interpretation I share it with you: the manager of a of a household or of household affairs, especially a steward, a manager, a superintendent to whom the head of a house or proprietor has entrusted. The management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out the proper portion to every servant and even to the children not yet of age. And so we have this tremendous understanding in the five words that we're catching an understanding of God's house. I want someone to get for me Galatians 4 2 over on this side. Denny, would you get for me Galatians 4 2? Here's a familiar word to most of you who are students of the New Testament and this has a little bearing that will give us some understanding. Would you read it out loud for us? Galatians 4, 2. But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the fathers. Now, this uh, word tutors is a Greek word, it's E-P-I-T-R-O-P-O-I. But governors, the word translated governors, is this word, orkinomoi, which literally means the manager or the former, which is a tutor, being the legal guardian and the teacher. But the governor, or the steward, as we translate it in some places in the New Testament, is the one who handles the properties, manages the properties, takes care of his property during his minority. So one is a teacher and an instructor, but the other manages and has this particular insight, one who takes care of his property and manages his affairs. Okay, now let's, uh, is there any question right at this point before I start to nail down the thought and change and shift gears? Does everybody understand what we're saying? House of God. To get this, we're talking about a, a, a biblical household out of which the New Testament was written to give us some understanding. Anybody have any questions at this point? Yes, Dick? Would not be the what? No, not necessarily. And probably not. This uh, this would probably be in a wealthy household, the husband. He would be the householder. He's the one whose property it is. But uh, being very wealthy and having large affairs and estates, this would be delegated out into what would be known as an okonomia, a steward, one who would have Authority to speak for him. We're going to move into that in a while. One who would have the authority to make tra- financial transactions for him. One that would oversee the affairs of the estate. One that would see to the feeding of the servants. One that would manage the servants, bring discipline within the household. all the things that the householder would not be involved in, that would be delegated to the steward of his house. You follow me? You see where we're moving from. See, it's difficult for us because we have no reference point for that. You and I just barely can pay the bills and keep afloat, much less have somebody to manage all of our affairs. So biblical interpretations moving out of the framework of the, the, the culture in which it was written. See, now the early believers, let's, let's begin to nail this down, saw in this social pattern, this is a social pattern, they saw in this social pattern a picture of the Christian church. And so in expression of New Testament revelation that fit with Old Testament, as we'll see in a moment, they saw a picture of God who is the householder moving through the various facets of revelation and expression into Jesus Christ, His Son, into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, into the various facets of the gospel as it is intended to be propagated in the earth and fits within this friend. This is such a rich study. I want to urge you, don't miss one of these studies because it's going to give you tremendous understanding. I've never done this before. Uh, Brother uh, Neville uh, gave me a book that he'd been reading. It's written by a German Lutheran. And it's one of those kind of, kind of books that you just... He knows Greek and you don't know Greek and he assumes that you know Greek and so you're just struggling and wrestling through all these things. But uh, when it finally began to emerge, I saw tremendous truths that were through it and suddenly God began to trigger me and, uh, and uh, I've never done this study before, but I guarantee you it'll be well worth your while to not miss a single session. God's going to give you some grounding and some understanding for one facet of New Testament revelation. So the early church saw in this social pattern a rich a vehicle for the carrying of, of divine revelation to the understanding. And see, God does that. When you read the parables, when we study the parable, Jesus reached into the culture of, of the day. He reached into the agricultural. He reached into the social patterns and began to put truth and bring truth from that because uh, one of the foundational truths of teaching is You must begin with the known to lead them to the unknown. In other words, you have to tie on to something that they know to lead them to the revelation. And if you cannot tie on to something that they know, you can never lead them on to uh, the unfolding revelation. And this is how Jesus taught, and this is how the Bible is written, because all divine revelation does not just flash out of heaven and suddenly lightning strikes. Oh, this is wonderful. And there's all kinds of things which you never heard of or never knew about, but God works on the understanding that you have. This is why revelation comes out of experience. So you cannot understand salvation until you're saved. So I don't understand salvation. Well, you, you, you can understand salvation until you get saved. And then you say, wow, isn't that nice? Hallelujah, I got saved. And then the other sinners say, Saved? What's that? I don't know, but man, it's it's wild. (laughs) This is why that we understand such tremendous truths of discipleship and we, we talk about discipleship and we, we just rattle it out such a wonderful and a glorious principle. We're seeing the fruits, the bombastic, the dynamic explosion of evangelism out of discipleship. And we read the New Testament and say, can't you see it? It's in the book of Acts. See that? See that? See that? See that? And they're saying, I don't understand what you're talking about. The reason is, they have no experience in discipleship because you have to experience before you can be led on into the fuller revelation. All revelation comes out of experience. Okay, any other question before we go on from there? Sister Cindy. That's true. It's important that we understand that. Very important that we understand that to get a full appreciation for what we're going to be studying in God's house because we have the idea and the Christian church has the idea from an over-emphasis uh, of Calvinism and the sovereignty of God that we don't do anything. God just going to do it all. We just and we just say, Oh, wow, isn't it? I, wow, man, isn't it? But that isn't the way it works. We know that He does do and we cannot do without Him, but... The truth is, he does not do without us. Look at that, huh? And the next thing you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten years down the road, they're doing the very thing that they said they were never going to do. Joe? In some sense, but not not uh, not totally we 're going to get into that when we get on down in one sense, yes, but uh, uh, in a truer sense, every believer we 're talking about every believer, this is where we 're moving to. in other words steward uh, uh, stewardship uh, does have pastoral or leadership connotations, but that 's not the main thrust of the truth. The main thrust of the truth is every believer, and this is going to be the richness of this study it's going to suddenly unfold to you personal responsibility in the kingdom of God in God's house and that's what American Christians simply do not understand and we have touched the fringes of it in our fellowship and this is what's bringing such tremendous blessing okay let's, uh, let's catch a little, uh, uh, little review then uh, the, these are the five words out of these five words uh, that are in the social situation. The oikos is the house was inhabited by the oiko, the household, consisting of both children and slaves. The head of the house was the oikodespotēs the householder, who had both a number of oikitoi, household servants under him, and also an oikonomos, a housekeeper or a steward to supervise them Feed the household and administer the affairs and the accounts of the house and the estate. So we've moved down with some groundwork for what we want you to understand in the kingdom of God. God's house. Far more than a dwelling place. Far more than an abode. But has rich connotations that have to do with life. Okay, we meet the steward or the manager of God's house several times in type. In the Old Testament, I want some scriptures. Over here, Genesis 15, 2. Bill uh, Kimball, I want Genesis 24, 1 through 4. Dwayne, Genesis 24, 1 through 4. Several times we meet the steward or the manager of God's house in type. So in Bible times then, as we've discovered by our study... Uh, there are has a, we catch the picture of the very well-to-do householder, who had a steward to manage his household affairs, his property, his farm, his vineyard, his accounts, and his slaves. Now, if you are a Bible student, you remember that Abraham, the Bible says, became very rich. He began to be blessed of God, began to multiply. You remember the story that he and, uh, and his nephew Lot began to have conflicts because their, their flocks began to multiply and there were encroachment on each other's grazing lands. And so um, uh, Abraham said to Lot, you choose where you're going to go. Lot said, I'll choose the plains of Sodom. Uh, then he pitched his tent before Sodom. Abraham left the place went up into the hill country of Judea near where present-day Hebron is, and there he began to feed his flocks and uh, began to have uh, his uh, dwelling place. But he became very wealthy. The Bible says he became very wealthy. It gives us the occasion where uh, Chedorlaomer came down and the kings of, uh, of the valley and uh, fought, and uh, the king of Sodom lost a battle, Chedorlaomer came, came down and, and he captured Lot in his house and news was brought to Abraham. And Abraham then gathered together his household. Servants. And if I remember, memory may be not correct, but around 318 people who were servants in his household. Now that's more than I have in my house. Remember? They chased after him. Uh, Chedorlaomer... They won the victory. They gained back the the booty. They gained back all the prisoners. And then as he passed by uh, Jerusalem, uh, Melchizedek, the uh, king of of Salem or Jerusalem, came out and Abraham gave him tithes of all. Remember that? And so uh, uh, he returned the great booty to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said, uh, I want you to just give us the, the, the wives, the children, and, and the servants, but you take all the material possessions for yourself. And uh, Abraham said, not so, because he said, I serve God who is maker of heaven and earth. And I'm not going to take not even a shoe latchet from you. Yes, you, would, you could say someday, I have made Abraham rich. So I don't need what you have. I have God who is a providing God and he will provide all that I have. And so we know that Abraham had a great household, and he was a very wealthy man. Genesis 15, chapter uh, 2, verse 2. Okay, here is Abraham. He's, uh, he's, uh, He's before God, and he said, God... What are you going to give me, seeing that I am childless and all that I have is this Eliezer who is the steward of all that I possess, and when I die, he's going to get everything that I possess. I don't have any children to leave my inheritance to. Okay, you following me? Okay, then Eliezer may have been the servant that was entrusted and probably was with finding a wife. For Isaac in later years after God gave uh, Abraham a son genesis twenty four one through four okay here 's a tremendous uh scene that gives us some, some understanding of how a steward worked within the household he's the chief steward or the uh, his elder calls him his elder servant and uh, and uh Isaac now has begun to grow and is grown he 's needing a wife. Abraham does not want him to marry of the of the heathens or the or the idol worshipping and so he wants him to go into his father 's house back to Haran and take a wife for his son of the daughters of those of his relatives and so he makes him put his hand under his thigh a biblical cultural. Uh, terminology, and swear by the God of heaven and earth that he will not allow his son to marry, but that he'll obtain a wife of his relatives that dwell in and He sends him on. If you read this story, uh, he had, uh, all right, now this is a tremendous story. He had authority to make a contract. See, marriage was a little different then. There was no romance. In America, we're so caught up with Hollywood that that I'm in love. You, you you get you're getting vibes. That's all you're getting. You're not in love. Amen. I have young people who get clean and they come to me and and they don't, they don't know how to date now. They're saved. They're clean. They're they're living a different lifestyle and uh, they really do get become a uh, you know they get good friends of the opposite sex and uh, and uh, but they're not getting all the you know they're not uh, they're not turned on like they was when they was in sin. And so they say, well. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not in love. Well, I say, well, what is love? Well, I don't know. See, we got to be in love to get married. Well, you better love to stay married, but very few people get married for love. Love is a long-term connotation. Hello, how would you like to have a steward choosing your wife for you? <laughs> a level-headed fellow <laughs> None of this Hollywood stuff. Wow, Ooh, man. Look at that chip. He's a level-headed fellow. <laughs> He has authority to contract. And he's going to bring Isaac back a wife and say, Hey, Isaac, here she is. And Isaac's going to accept her. He's going to marry her. He's going to start his family. And then he's going to start learning how to fall in love. Well, I didn't rehearse that, but it's a good place for that. (laughs) Amen. See, I have people come to me, and they've uh, they've been married... uh, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. and so on. I'm not in love. I don't love my wife anymore. Oh, really? Why don't you? You have to put forth effort, you know. Well, I just don't love my husband anymore. Thank you, Jesus. He's going to contract he has with him a great deal of wealth he's got bracelets and earrings and necklaces and all kinds of baubles of gold that he's going to find rebecca and he's going to load her down with these jewels and she's going to she's going to come into her father's house and she's going to be loaded down with these and the family's eyes are going to pop out and say wow uh, his uh, his master is uh, loaded. Remember this story. How many of you read this story? Let me see your hand. You read this story, okay? He's he's he has this wealth. Abraham didn't. If you look, if you look there, Abraham didn't tell him to do any of these things. He's acting on the on the moment. Abraham says to him, uh, "Now I want you to find one." He didn't tell her tell him what she's going to look like. And here's Eliza, this steward. He's a God-fearing man, and he prays. And as he prays, he said, Oh, God, I want you to guide me and help me. Now, Lord, when I come uh, uh, into this place, uh, the, the maid that comes uh, and uh, waters at this well, and I ask her a drink of water, and she gives it, and then I say to her, uh, Don't only give me a drink of water. How about watering my camels? And she does it. That's going to be the one. I want you to do a miracle for me, Lord, and let me know the right girl for Isaac and so Rebecca comes to the well and uh, and when she comes he says to her would you, uh, would you uh, give me a drink and she gives him a drink and he says uh, you know what I, you'd really make me happy if you watered the camels also now this is, isn't in the glass of water he's asking for he's asking for a whole caravan to be watered and she gladly says sure and she takes on this task and uh, God says to him that's the girl right there Tremendous beauty and truth. But he had now the power of discretion or choice. This was a delegated responsibility as the steward of Abraham's house. He made contract. He uh, negotiated the entire process. And so Abraham uh, set that up for him and put it into operation. Okay, we need to catch a picture of Joseph, just for a moment. Genesis forty-three sixteen. Somebody over here. Uh, Bob, uh, Jerry, would you get for me Genesis 44, 1 through 6. We want a picture of, of Joseph. I want to lay some groundwork for you in the Old Testament to let you know that we're not talking about something far out. We're talking about something that was rooted in biblical revelation and in the social practices and the culture of the bible Genesis 43:16 tells us of Joseph When Joseph saw Benjamin with him he said to the ruler of his house He gave him instructions they're going to have a meal and uh, this, uh, this involved the selection of uh, uh, servants the preparing the meal and all the range of activities that had. He simply gave the charge and the servant or the steward of his house carried this out. Genesis 44, 1 through 6. Loud, clear voice, Jerry. He commanded the steward of his house. Okay, here's a steward. He's uh, in charge of the servants of the household for preparation of the meal, the portioning out. He's in charge of his business. He's in charge of the sales of grain that they came down for. He's the one that set up the scam that Joseph pulled on his brothers to bring them to repentance and the hiding of the cup and the money in Benjamin's sack so that he'd bring the whole family back down and his father. And he set up this entire scam, and he did this through his steward who was responsible to carry out business in his household. 2 Samuel 9, 9 and 10. I want someone to read that for me, Uh, uh, Ron uh, Stewart. And uh, here we have uh, Mephibosheth and uh, Ziba and uh, an interesting uh, story out of the life of King David and King David's time. 2 Samuel 9, 9 and 10. Okay, here is uh, Ziba, or Ziba, whatever his name is. He was the steward of Saul's household. Saul now ha- uh, uh, has, uh, has died. Jonathan, his son, has died with him. Ziba's in charge of his household. Mephibosheth is the only uh, surviving son. And David reaffirms to Ziba his responsibility to Mephibosheth. And to make a long story short, he did abuse this, but he had legal authority to misuse Mephibosheth's property and business because he was his steward he was his manager he was in charge of all of his affairs Hezekiah also we see this in his lifetime Isaiah 22 15 through 22 someone want to get that for us Uh, Denny would you like to get that Isaiah 22 15 through 22 we're running out of time maybe we ought to just write that down and uh, let's, let's just forget that scripture because I want to move on to some other things. Uh, this is Hezekiah. Speaks of the key of the house of David. That's a very important reference because you're going to find that repeated in the New Testament in the book of Acts concerning Jesus Christ and concerning the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, concerning uh, some other things that are referenced there. And so this key that... Uh, uh, that uh, the uh, steward had was no doubt a key to the stores and moves into that. You can write down Daniel 1, 11 through 16. Here's Daniel, the three Hebrew children. Uh, they are in charge of uh, a man that's called Melzar in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon. And this is, uh, is not, uh, probably is not the proper name of the man, but it probably is the title of Stewardship. This is what authors feel. And this was not the man's proper name. This was his job description or overseer. The Authorized Version does translate it not as Melzar, but as overseer. Daniel 1, 11 through 16. All right. We want to conclude with a New Testament to see the continuation of this. And I'd like Luke 8, 1 through 3. Denny, maybe you'd like to get that for us. Luke 8, 1 through 3. And we want to see that Jesus carried this on out into the church and the culture in which he lived. Luke 8. 1 through 3, if you'd like to read that out loud for us. Joanna helped to provide for the Lord Jesus out of her means, and she was the wife of Herod's steward. Okay, we want Matthew 20, verse 1 and verse 8. Somebody over here on this side. Matthew 20, verse 1. Brother uh, Kleppel. Matthew 20, verse 1 and verse 8. Out of the New Testament cultural setting. Matthew 20, verse 1 and verse 8. Loud, clear voice for me. Would somebody over here get, get for me Luke 16? Uh. Let's get somebody in the middle with us so we can hear all here to Dan Atherton. Luke 16, 1 through nine, Dan. Matthew twenty verses one and one and eight, Brother Cleffel. And householder. And verse eight. see this terminology being used now in the New Testament and we we read through that we don't fully we can get just a glimpse but we don't get the full range of meaning and it's important that we understand that Luke 16:1 through 9 had a steward Okay, the things we want to pick out of that, here's a rich man, he had a steward. This man had the authority to do binding business transactions for his master, and apparently he escaped, uh, he escaped uh, detection in the process. And so those are the things that we want to pull out of that uh, just for the moment. Okay, let me nail this down for you. We're talking about God's house. We're talking about nailing down uh, the understanding of the discharge of kingdom responsibilities, of the importance of understanding of that as a church and an individual believer because much of the Bible is written out of that setting. For instance, when God says to David, David says, uh, uh, I'm uh, going to build God a house. And so he began to do this, and uh, God said, you're you're not going to build me a house. Your son can build it for me. But I say unto you, David, he's sitting in the presence of the Lord. I say unto you, I'm going to build you a house, David. You're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house, and it's going to last uh, into the everlasting. And then we pick that up on in the New Testament and find that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has tremendous connotation. And so uh, we want to let We've got about two minutes, according to my clock, for a couple of real pertinent questions. Brother Dwayne.